Part Four of A Child of the Jago by Arthur Morrison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section seventeen to twenty two. Section seventeen. There was much talk of Father Sturt's announcement. Many held it a shame that so much money, destined for the benefit of the Jago, should be spent in bricks and mortar, instead of being distributed among themselves. They fell to calculating the price of the land and houses, and to working out it laboriously in the denomination of pots and gallons. More, it was felt to be a grave social danger that the Jago Court should be extinguished. What would become of the Jago without Jago Court? Where would Sunday morning be spent? Where would the fights come off? and where was so convenient a place for pitch and toss? But mainly they feared the police. Jago Court was an unfailing sanctuary, a city of refuge ever ready, ever secure. There were times when two or three of the police, hot in the chase, would burst into the Jago at the heels of a flying marauder. Then the runaway would make straight for the archway, and once he was in Jago Court, danger was over, for he had only to run into one of the ever-open doors at right or left, and out into backyards and other houses, or better, to scramble over the low fence opposite, through the back door before him, and so into New Jago Street. Beyond the archway the police could not venture, except in large companies. A young constable who tried it once, getting ahead of two companions in his ardour, was laid low as he emerged from the passage by a fire grate adroitly let drop from an upper window. The blotting out of such a godsend of a place as this would be a calamity, the Jago would never be the same again. As it was, the old Jago was a very convenient, comfortable sort of place, they argued. They could not imagine themselves living anywhere else, but assuredly it would be the Jago no longer without Jago Court, and this thing was to be done too with money got together for their benefit. The sole explanation the Jago could supply was the one that at last, with arithmetical variations, prevailed. The landlords were to be paid a sum, varying in Jago estimation from a hundred pounds to a hundred thousand, for the houses and the ground, and of this they were secretly to return to Father Sturt a certain share, generally agreed on as half, as his private fee for bringing about so desirable a transaction. Looked at from all points, this appeared to be the most plausible explanation, for no other could reasonably account for Father Sturt's activity. No wonder he could afford to reduce some of the rents. Was he not already receiving princely wages, variously supposed to be something from ten pounds to thirty pounds a week, from the government for preaching every Sunday? Still, the rents were to be reduced. This was the immediate consideration, and nothing but an immediate consideration carried weight in the Jago, where a shilling today was to be preferred to a constant income beginning in a month's time. The first effect of the announcement was a rush of applications for rooms in the doomed houses, each applicant demanding to be accommodated by the eviction of somebody already established, but now disinterestedly discovered to be a bad tenant. They were all disappointed, but the residents had better luck than they had hoped, for the unexpected happened, and the money for a new part of the new buildings was suddenly guaranteed. Wherefore Father Sturt, knowing that many would be hard put to it to find shelter when the houses came down, and guessing that rents would rise with the demand, determined to ask none for the little while the tenements endured. Scarce had he made his decision known ere he regretted it, popular as it was, for he reflected that money saved would merely melt, 
and that at the inevitable turning out not a soul would be better off for the relief, but indeed might find it harder than ever to pay rent after the temporary easement. It would have been better rigidly to exact the rent, and to return it in lump to each tenant as he left. The sum would have been an inducement to leave peaceably, a matter in which trouble was to be expected. But then, what did any windfall of shillings bring in the jago? What but a drunk? This was one of Father Sturt's thousand perplexities, and he could but hope that, perhaps, he had done right after all. The old buildings were sold, as they stood, to the house-wreckers, and on the house-wreckers devolved the work of getting the lodgers out. For weeks the day was deferred, but it drew very near at last, and a tall hoarding was put up. Next morning it had vanished, but there was a loud crackling where the jagos boiled their pots. Dicky Perrott and Tommy Rann had a bonfire in Edge Lane, and Jerry Gullen's canary sweated abroad before a heavy load of cheap firewood. Then Josh Perrott and Billy Leary, his old enemy, were appointed joint guardians of the new hoarding, each to get half a crown on every morning when the fence was found intact. And in the end there came eviction day, and once more the police held the jago in force, escorting gangs of men with tumbrils. As for the Perrotts, they could easily find another room, at the high rent always charged for the privilege of residence in the jago, to have remained in one room four or five years, and to have paid rent with indifferent good regularity was a feat sufficiently rare to be notorious, and to cause way to be made for them wherever a room was falling vacant, or could be emptied. They went no farther than across the way, to a room wherein a widow had died over her sack-making two days before, and had sat on the floor with her head between her knees for hours, while her children, not understanding, cried that they were hungry. These children were now gone to the workhouse, more fortunate than the many they left behind, and the room was a very fair one, ten feet square or so. The rest of the tenants thought not at all of new quarters, and did nothing to find them, till they found themselves and their belongings roofless in old Jago Street. Then, with one accord, they demanded lodgings of the vicar. Most of them had never inhabited any room so long as they had had these, which they must now leave, having been ejected again and again because of unpaid rent. Nevertheless, they clamoured for redress, as they might have clamoured had they never changed dwellings in their lives. Nobody resisted the police, for there were too many of them. Moreover, Father Sturt was there, and few had hardihood for any but their best behaviour in his presence. Still, there were disputes among the Jagos themselves, that sometimes came very near to fights. Ginger Stagg's missus professed to recognise a long-lost property in a tin kettle brought into the outer air among the belongings of Mrs. Walsh. The miscellaneous rags and sticks that were Cocko Hanwell's household goods got mingled in the roadway with those appertaining to the fishers, and their assortment without a turn of family combat was a task which tried the vicar's influence to the utmost. Mrs. Rafferty, too, was suspected of undue pride in a cranky deal washstand, and thereby of a disposition to sneer at the humbler turnout of the Regans from the next floor, giving occasion for a shrill and animated row. The weather was dry, fortunately, and the evicted squatted in the roadway by their heaps, or sat on them squabbling and lamenting. Ginger Stagg, having discovered certain crockery with the old family mattress, forgetfully sat on it, and came upon Father Sturt with an indignant demand for compensation. Father Sturt's efforts to stimulate a search for new lodgings met with small success at first. It was felt that, no doubt, there were lodgings to be had, 
but they would be open to the fatal objection of costing something, and the Jago temperament could neither endure nor understand payment for what had been once given for nothing. Father Sturt, the Jagos argued, had given them free quarters for so long. Then why should he stop now? If they cleared out in order to make room for his new church, in common fairness he should find them similar lodging on the same terms. So they sat and waited for him to do it. At length the vicar set to work with them in good earnest, carried away with him a family or two at a time, and inducted them to rooms of his own finding, and hereat others, learning that in these cases the rent in advance was exacted, disturbed themselves, reflecting that if rent must be paid they might as well choose their own rooms as take those that Father Sturt might find. Of course the thing was not done without payments from the vicar's pocket. Some were wholly destitute. Others could not muster enough to pay that advance of rent which alone could open a Jago tenancy. Distinguishing the genuine impecuniosity from the merely professed, with the insight that was now a sixth sense with him, Father Sturt helped sparingly and in secret, for a precedent of almsgiving was an evil thing in the Jago, confirming the shiftlessness which was already a piece of Jago nature, and setting up long affliction for the almsgiver. Enough of such precedents existed, and the inevitable additions thereto were a work of anxious responsibility and jealous care. So the bivouac in old Jago Street melted away. For one thing, there were those among the dispossessed who would not waste time in unproductive inactivity just then, for war had arisen with Dove Lane and spoils were going. Dove Lane was no very reputable place, but it was not like the Jago. In the phrase of the district, the Dove Laners were pretty thick, but the Jagos were thick as glue. There were many market porters among the Dove Laners, and at this, their prosperous season, they and their friends resorted to a shop in Meakin Street, kept by an Ikey tailor, there to buy the original out-and-out -out downy Benjamins, or the celebrated bang-up Kixies, cut saucy, with artful buttons and a double fakement down the sides, and hereabout they were apt to be set upon by the Jagos, overthrown by superior numbers, bashed and cleaned out, or, if the purchases had been made, they were flimped out of their Kixies, Benjies or Daisies, as the case might be so that a fight with Dove Lane might be an affair of some occasional profit, and it became no loyal Jago to idle in the stronghold. Father Sturt's task was nearly over, when, returning to old Jago Street, he saw Dicky Perrot sitting by a still remaining heap, a heap small and poor even among those others. The Perrots had been decorously settled in their new home since early morning. But here was Dicky, guarding a heap with a baby on it, and absorbed in the weaving of rush bags. "'That's right, Dicky, my boy,' said Father Sturt, in the approving voice that a Jago would do almost anything, except turn honest, to hear. And Dicky, startled, looked up, flush and happy, over his shoulder. "'Rush bags, eh?' the vicar went on, stooping and handing Dicky another rush from the heap. "'And whose are they?' The bags, the rushes, the heap, and the baby belonged to Mrs. Bates, the widow, who was now in search of a new room. Dicky had often watched the weaving of fishmongers' frails, and since it was work in which he had had no opportunity of indulging, it naturally struck him as a fascinating pastime, so that he was delighted by the chance which he had taken, and Mrs. Bates, for her part, was not sorry to find somebody to mind her property. Moreover, by hard work and the skill begot of much practice, she was able to earn a sum of some three farthings an hour at the rush-bags, 
a profit which her cupidity made her reluctant to lose for even half an hour. And thus to have Dicky carry on the business, and in his enthusiasm he did it very well, was a further consideration. Father Sturt chatted with Dicky till the boy could scarce plat for very pride. For would not Dicky like to work regularly every day, asked Father Sturt, and earn wages? Dicky could see no graceful answer but the affirmative, and in sober earnest he thought he would. Father Sturt took hold of Dicky's vanity. Was he not capable of something better than other Jago boys? Why should he not earn regular wages and live comfortably, well fed and clothed, with no fear of the police, and no shame for what he did? He might do it when others could not. They were not clever enough. They called themselves clever and wide. But, said Father Sturt, is there one of them that can deceive me? And Dicky knew there was not one. Most did no work. The vicar's argument went on, because they had neither the pluck to try, nor the intelligence to accomplish. Else why did they live the wretched Jago life, instead of take the pleasanter time of the decent labourer? Dicky, already as zealous at work as exampled in rush-bag-making, listened with wistful pride. Yes, if he could, he would work and take his place over the envious heads of his Jago friends. But how? Nobody would employ a boy living in the Jago. That was notorious. The address was a topsy-turvy testimonial for miles around. All the same, when Mrs. Bates at last took away her belongings, Dicky ran off in delighted amaze to tell his mother and Em that he was going to tea in Father Sturt's rooms. And the wreckers tore down the foul old houses, laying bare the secret dens of a century of infamy, lifting out the wide sashes of the old weaver's windows, the one good feature in the structures, letting light and air at last into the subterraneous basements where men and women had swarmed and bred and died, like wolves in their lairs, and emerging from clouds of choking dust, each man a colony of vermin. But there were rooms which the wreckers, no jack neither, flatly refused to enter, and nothing would make them but much coaxing, the promise of extra pay, and the certainty of much immediate beer. Section 18 Mr. Grinder kept a shop in the Bethnal Green Road. It was announced in brilliant lettering as an oil, colour and Italian warehouse, and there, in addition to the oil and the colour, and whatever of Italian there might have been, he sold pots, pans, kettles, brooms, shovels, mops, lamps, nails, and treacle. It was a shop ever too tight for its stock, which burst forth at every available opening, and heaped so high on the paving that the window was half buried in a bank of shining tin. Father Sturt was one of the best customers, the oil, candles and utensils needed for church and club all coming from Mr. Grinder's. Mr. Grinder was losing his shop-boy, who had found a better situation, and Father Sturt determined that, could but the oilman be persuaded, Dicky Perrot should be the new boy. Mr. Grinder was persuaded, chiefly perhaps because the vicar undertook to make good the loss, should the experiment end in theft, partly because it was policy to oblige a good customer, and partly indeed because Mr. Grinder was willing to give such a boy a chance in life, for he was no bad fellow, as oil and colourmen go, and had been an errand boy himself. So that there came a Monday morning when Dicky, his clothes as well mended as might be, for Hannah Perrott, no more than another Jago could disobey Father Sturt, 
and a cut-down apron of his mother's tied before him, stood by Mr. Grinder's bank of pots and kettles, in an eager agony to sell something, and near blind with the pride of the thing. He had been waiting at the shop door long ere Mr. Grinder was out of bed, and now set to guard the outside stock, a duty not to be neglected in that neighbourhood. He brushed a tin-pot here and there with his sleeve, and longed for some Jago friend to pass and view him in his new greatness. The goods he watched over were an unfailing source of interest, and he learned by much repetition the prices of all the saucepans, painted in blue distemper on the tin, and ranging from eightpence halfpenny on the big pots in the bottom row, to three halfpence on the very little ones at the top, and there were long ranks of little paraffin lamps at a penny, the sort that had set fire to a garret in half Jago Street a month since, and burnt old Mother Leary to a greasy cinder with a smaller array of superior quality at fourpence halfpenny, just like the one that had burst at Jerry Gullen's and burned the bed, while over his head swung doormats at one and eightpence, with penny mousetraps dangling from their corners. While he grew more accustomed to his circumstances, he bethought him to collect a little dirt and rub it down the front of his apron to give himself a well-worked and business-like appearance, and he greatly impeded women who looked at the saucepans and the mousetraps ere they entered the shop by his anxiety to cut them off for Mr. Grinder and serve them himself. He remembered the boy at the toy shop in Bishopsgate Street years ago, who had chased him through Spitalfields, and he wished that some lurching youngster would snatch a mousetrap, that he might make a chase himself. At Mr. Grinder's every call, Dicky was prompt and willing, for every new duty was a fresh delight, and the whole day a prolonged game of real shopkeeping. And at his tea... He was to have tea each day in addition to the three and sixpence every Saturday. He took scarce five minutes. There was a trolley, just such a thing as porters used at railway stations, but smaller, which was his own particular implement, his own to pack parcels on for delivery to such few customers as did not carry away their own purchases. And to acquire the dexterous management of this trolley was a pure joy. He bolted his tea to start the sooner on a trolley journey to a public house two hundred yards away. His enthusiasm for work as an amusement cooled in a day or two, but all his pride in it remained. The fight with Dublane waxed amain, but Dicky could not be tempted into more than a distant interest in it. In his daydreams he saw himself a tradesman, with a shop of his own and the name R. Perrot, with a gold flourish over the door. He would employ a boy himself then, and there would be a parlour, with stuffed-bottomed chairs and a shade of flowers, an M grown up and playing on the piano. Truly, Father Sturt was right. The hooks were fools, and the straight game was the better. Bobby Roper, the hunchback, went past the shop once, and saw him. Dicky, minding his new dignity, ignored his enemy, and for the first time in a year or more allowed him to pass without either taunt or blow. The other, astonished at Dicky's new occupation, came back and back again, staring, from a safe distance, at Dicky and the shop. Dicky, on his part, took no more notice than to assume an ostentatious vigilance, so that the hunchback, burying his teeth in a snigger of malice, at last turned on his heel and rolled off. Twice Kiddo Cook passed, but made no sign of recognition beyond a wink, and Dicky felt grateful for Kiddo's obvious fear of compromising him. Once Old Beveridge came by, striding rapidly, his tatters flying, and the legend hard up chalked on his hat, as was his manner in his town rambles. He stopped abruptly at sight of Dicky, stooped, and said, "'Dicky Parrot! Hum! Hum! Hey!' 
Then he hurried on, doubtless conceiving just such a fear as Kiddo Cook's. As for Tommy Rann, his affections were alienated by Dicky's outset refusal to secrete treacle in a tin mug for a midnight carouse, and he did not show himself. So matters went for near a week. But Mr. Weech missed Dicky sadly. It was rare for a day to pass without a visit from Dicky, and Dicky had a way of bringing good things. Mr. Weech would not have sold Dicky's custom for ten shillings a week. So that when Mr. Weech inquired and found that Dicky was at work in an oil shop, he was naturally annoyed. Moreover, if Dicky got into that way of life, he would have no fear for himself, and might get talking inconveniently among his new friends about the business affairs of Mr. Aaron Weech, and at this reflection the philanthropist grew thoughtful. Section 19 Dicky had gone on an errand, and Mr. Grinder was at the shop door, when there appeared before him a whiskered and smirking figure, with a quick glance each way along the street, and the long and smiling one at the oil man's necktie. "'Good morning, Mr. Grinder. Good morning, sir.' Mr. Weech stroked his left palm with his right fist, and nodded pleasantly. "'I'm in business myself, over in Meeking Street. Name of Weech. Perhaps you know the shop?' Oh, I just hopped over to ask, Grinder led the way into the shop, to ask, so as to make things quite sure, you know, though no doubt's all right, to ask is correct you're offering brass roasting jacks at a shilling each. Brass roasting jacks at a shilling? exclaimed Grinder, shocked at the notion. Why, no. Mr. Weech appeared mildly surprised. Nor yet seven pound jars of jam and pickles at sixpence? he pursued, with his eyes on those ranged behind the counter. No. Nor doormats at fourpence? Fourpence? Certainly not. Mr. Weech's face fell into a blank perplexity. He poured his ear with a doubtful air, murmuring absently, Well, I'm sure he said fourpence, and sixpence for pickles, and bring him round after the shop was shut. But there, uh, he added, more briskly, there's no harm done. Uh, no doubt it's a mistake. He turned as though to leave, but Grinder restrained him. But look here, he said. I want to know about this. He was going to bring pickles round after the shop was shut. Who said fourpence for doormats? Oh, I expect it's just a little mistake, that's all, answered Weech, making another motion toward the door. And I don't want to get nobody into trouble. Trouble? Nice trouble I'd be in if I sold brass smoke jacks for a bob. There's something here as I ought to know about. Tell me about it straight. Mr. Weech looked thoughtfully at the oil man's top waistcoat button for a few seconds and said, Yes, perhaps I better. I can feel for you, Mr. Grinder, having a feeling art and being in business myself. Where's your boy? Gone out. Coming back soon? Not yet. Come into the back parlour. There, Mr. Weech with ingenuous reluctance, assured Mr. Grinder that Dicky Perrot had importuned him to buy the goods in question at the prices he had mentioned, together with others, readily named now that the oil man swallowed so freely, and that they were to be delivered and paid for at night when Dicky left work. But perhaps, Mr. Weech concluded, parading an obstinate belief in human nature, perhaps the boy, being new to the business, had mistaken the prices and was merely doing his best to push his master's trade. No fear of that, said Mr. Grinder, shaking his head gloomily. Not the least fear of that. He knows the cheapest doormats I got, one and six. 
I heard him tell customers so outside a dozen times, and anyone can see the smoke japs is ticketed five and nine, as Mr. Weech had seen when he spoke of them. I thought the boy was too eager and willing to be quite genuine, Dicky's master went on. He ain't had me yet, that's one comfort. If anything had been gone, I'd have missed it. But out he goes as soon as he comes back. You can take your day with you that. Ah, replied Mr. Weech, it's fearful a wickedness there is about, ain't it? It's enough to break your heart. Sitch a neighbourhood, too. Why, if it was known as how I give you this here little friendly information, being a business myself, and knowing what it is, my life wouldn't be safe a hour. It wouldn't, Mr. Grinder. Wouldn't it, said Mr. Grinder. You mean them in the Jago, I suppose? Yes, you're an awful lot, Mr. Grinder. You've no idea. The boy, this here father, I've warned you against, he's in a desperate gang, and they'd murder me if they thought I'd come and told you honest, when you might have been robbed, as is my nature too. They would indeed. And so, of course, you won't say what I told you, or who give you this here honourable friendly warning, not to nobody. That's a right, answered the simple grinder. I won't let on. But out he goes, prompt. I'm obliged to ye, Mr. Weech. Er... Uh, What'll ye take? Mr. Weech put away the suggestion with a virtuous palm. Nothing at all, Mr. Grinder. Thanks all the same. I never touch nothing, and I'm glad to, to do any moral job, so to speak, as comes in my way. Scatter seeds of kindness, you know, as the psalm says, Mr. Grinder. Your boy ain't back, is he? And after peering cautiously, Mr. Weech went his way. Section 20 Dicky completed his round and pushed his unladen trolley grinderward with a fuller sense of responsibility than ever, for he carried money. A publican had paid him four and threepence, and he had taken two and tenpence elsewhere. He had left his proud signature, pencilled large and black, on two receipts, and he stopped in a dozen doorways to count the money over again and make sure that all was right. Between the halts he added four and three to two and ten mentally, and proved his sum correct by subtracting each in turn from seven and a penny. And at last he stood his trolley on end by the bank of saucepans, and entered the shop. "'Walkers is paid, and Wilkins is paid,' said Dicky, putting down the money. Two and ten and four and three seven and a penny.' Mr. Grinder looked steadily and sourly at Dicky, and counted. He pitched the odd penny into the till, and shook the rest of the coins in his closed hand, still staring moodily in the boy's face. "'It's three and six a week you come here at,' he said. "'Yes, sir,' Dicky replied, since Grinder seemed to expect an answer. The supreme moment when he should take his first wages had been the week's beacon to him, reddening and brightening as Saturday night grew nearer. Three and six a week, and your tea!' Dicky wondered. So as if I found out anything about, say, brass roastin' jacks, for instance, I could give ye your three and six and start ye off, unless I did something worse. Dicky was all in comprehension, but something made him feel a little sick. But supposing I didn't find anything out about, say, seven punjars of pickles, and suppose I wasn't disposed to suspect anything in regard to, say, doormats. Then I could give ye a week's notice, 
or pay ye a week's money and clear ye out on the spot with no more trouble. Mr. Grinder paused and still looked at Dicky with calm dislike. Then he added, as though in answer to himself, Yes. He dropped the money slowly from his right hand to his left. Dicky's mouth was dry, and the drawers and pickle jars swam before him on each side of Grinder's head. What did it mean? Eya! cried Mr. Grinder with sudden energy, thrusting his hand across the counter. Two free and sixes is seven shillings, and you can git your tea at home with your dirty little sister. Git out of my shop. Dicky's hand closed mechanically on the money, and after a second's pause he found broken speech. What, what, what for, sir? he asked huskily. I ain't done nothing. No, and you shan't do nothing, that's more. Out ye go. If I see ye near the place again, I'll have ye locked up. Dicky slunk to the door. He felt the sobs coming, but he turned at the threshold and said with tremulous lips, "'Won't you give me a chance, sir? Help me. I done me best. I—' Mr. Grinder made a short rush from the back of the shop, and Dicky gave up and fled. It was all over. There could never be a shop with R. Perrot painted over it now. There would be no parlour with stuffed-bottomed chairs and a piano for M to play. He was cut off from the trolley for ever. Dicky was thirteen, and at that age the children of the Jago were past childish tears. But tears he could not smother, even till he might find a hiding place. They burst out shamefully in the open street. He took dark turnings and hid his head in doorways. It was very bitter. At last, when the sobs grew fewer, he remembered the money gripped in his wet fist. It was a consolation. Seven shillings was a vast sum in Dicky's eyes. Until that day he had never handled so much in his life. It would have been handsome recompense, he thought, for any trouble in the world but this. He must take it home, of course. It might avail to buy sympathy of his father and mother, but then to think he might have had as much every fortnight of his life, a good tea every day, and the proud responsibility, and the trolley. At this his lips came awry again, his eyes sought his sleeve, and he turned to another doorway. His glance fell on the white apron, now smudged and greased in good earnest. It made him feel worse, so he untied it and stuffed it away under his jacket. He wondered vaguely what had occurred to irritate Mr. Grinder, and why he talked of pickles and doormats. But the sorrow of it all afflicted him to the extinction of such minor speculation, and in this misery he dragged his reluctant feet toward the old Jago. Section 21 He handed his father the seven shillings, and received a furious belting for losing his situation. He cried quietly, but it was not because of the strap. All he feared now was to meet Father Sturt. He had rather fifty beltings than Father Sturt's reproaches, and having disgraced himself with Mr. Grinder in some mysterious way, which it was beyond his capacity to understand, what but reproaches could he expect from the vicar? The whole world was against him. As for himself, he was hopeless. Plainly he must have some incomprehensible defect of nature, since he offended, do as he might, and could neither understand nor redeem his fault. He wondered if it had been so with little Neddy Wright, who had found the world too ruthless for him at ten, and had tied a brick to his neck, as he had seen done with needless dogs, and let himself timidly down into the canal at Haggerstone Bridge. So he shuffled through Jago Row, 
when a hand came on his shoulder, and a hoarse voice said, "'What's the matter, Dickie?' He turned and saw the mild, coarse face of Pigeony Pole, the jaw whereof was labouring on something tough and sticky. Pole pulled from her pocket a glutinous paper, clinging about a cohesive lump of broken toffee, the one luxury of her moneyed times. "'Have a bit,' she said. "'What's the matter?' But Dicky thrust the hand away and fled, for he feared another burst of tears. His eyes were bad enough as it was, and he longed to hide himself in some hole. He turned into New Jago Street. Hither it was that Jerry Gullen had betaken himself with his family and the canary, after the great eviction. Dicky slackened his pace, loitered at Jerry's doorway, and presently found himself in the common passage. It was long since he had had a private interview with Jerry Gullen's canary, for, indeed, he was thirteen. He was no longer a child, in fact, and it was not well that he should indulge in such foolish weakness. Nevertheless, he went as far as the back door. There stood the old donkey, mangy and infirm as ever, but apparently no nearer the end. The wood of the fence was bitten in places, but it was not as yet gnawed to the general whiteness and roundness of that in Canary's old abode. Canary, indeed, was fortunate to-day, for at the sound of Dicky's step he lifted his nose from a small heap of straw, dust and mouldy hay, swept into a corner. Dicky stepped into the yard and put his hand on Canary's neck. Presently he glanced guiltily at the windows above. Nobody was looking and in five minutes Dicky, aged as he was, had told Canary his troubles, while new tears wetted the ragged crest and dropped into the dusty straw. Now his grief lost some of its edge. Ashamed as he was, he had a shapeless, unapprehended notion that Canary was the sole creature alive that could understand and feel with him, and Canary poked his nose under the old jacket and sniffed in sympathy as the broken lining tickled him. Dicky's intellectuals began to arrange themselves. Plainly, Mr. Weech's philosophy was right after all. He was of the Jago, and he must prey on the outer world, as all the Jago did, not stray foolishly off the regular track in chase of visions and fall headlong. Father Sturt was a creature of another mould. Who was he, Dicky Perrot, that he should break away from the Jago habit, and strain after another nature? What could come of it but defeat and bitterness? As old Beveridge had said, the Jago had got him. Why should he fight against the inevitable and bruise himself? The ways out of the Jago, old Beveridge had told him years ago. Jail, the gallows, and the high mob. There was his chance, his aspiration, his goal. The high mob. To dream of oil shops or regular wages was foolishness. His bed was made in the Jago, and he must lie on it. His hope in life, if he might have a hope at all, was to be of the high mob. Spare nobody, stop at nothing, do his devilmost. Old Beveridge had said that years ago. The task was before him, and he must not balk at it. As for Jail and the gallows, well, there they were, and he could not help it. Ill ways out of the Jago both, but still, ways out. He rubbed his face carefully with his sleeve, put away his foolish ambitions, and went forth with a brave heart, to accomplish his destiny for well or ill, a Jago rat, to do his devilmost, but to avoid Father Sturt. Out he went into Shoreditch High Street, and there he prowled the evening away, there and in Norton Folgate. 
But he touched for nothing, nothing at all. He feared lest his week's honesty had damaged his training. Even an apple on a stall he failed at and had to run. And then he turned into Bethnal Green Road. But here a thought checked him suddenly. What of Mr. Grinder? He had threatened to have Dicky locked up if he came near the shop again. But a child of the Jago knew too much to be frightened by such a threat as that. He went on. He felt interested to see how his late employer was getting along without him, and who was mining the goods outside the shop. Probably there was nobody, and this gave Dicky an idea. He had forgotten his smudgy apron, folded and tucked away in the lining of his jacket. Now he pulled it out and fastened it before him once more. He knew Mr. Grinder's habits in the shop, and if he could seize a fitting opportunity, he might be able, attired in his apron, to pick up or reach down any article that struck his fancy, fearless of interference from passers-by, for he would seem to be still a shop-boy. With that he hastened, for it was near closing time at Grinder's. He took the opposite side of the road, the better to observe unseen in the darkness. But Mr. Grinder had already begun to carry things in from the pavement. As Dicky looked, he came out with a long pole, wherewith he unhooked from above a clattering cluster of pails and watering-pots, and a bunch of doormats. The doormats he let fall on the flags, while he carried in the pots and pails. Dicky knew that these pots and pails were kept at night in a shed behind the house. So he scuttled across the road, opening the blade of his old knife as he ran. He cut the string that held the mats together, selected a thick one, rolled it under his arm, and edged off into the shadow. Then he ran quietly across to the nearest turning. Mr. Grinder came out, hooked his finger in the string among the mats, and pulled up nothing. He stooped and saw that the string was cut. He looked about him suspiciously, flung the mats over and counted them. Then he stood erect, stared up the street, down the street, and across the road, with his mouth open, made short rushes left and right into the gloom. Then he returned to the mats and scratched his head. Finally, he gave another glance about the street, picked up the mats in his arms and carried them in, counting them as he went. And the mats bestowed, whenever he came forth for a fresh armful of saucepans, he stood and gazed doubtfully, now this way, now that, about the Bethnal Green Road. Mr. Aaron Weech was pushing his last shutter into its place, when, "'Clean the knives!' said Dicky Perrot, in a perfunctory repetition of the old formula. Mr. Weech seemed taken aback. "'What, that?' he asked, doubtfully, pointing at the doormat. Then, after a sharp look about the almost deserted street, he ran to Jago Row Corner, twenty yards away, and looked down there. Nobody was hiding, and he came back. He led the way into the shop and closed the door. Then, looking keenly in Dicky's face, he suddenly asked, "'Who told you to bring that here?' "'Told me,' Dicky answered sullenly. "'Nobody told me. Don't you want it?' "'How much did he tell you to ask for it?' "'Tell me. Who?' "'You know. How much did you say he said?' Dicky was mystified. "'Don't know what you mean,' he replied. Mr. Weech suddenly broke into a loud laugh, but kept his keen look on the boy's face nevertheless. "'Ah, uh, it's a good joke, Dicky, ain't it?' he said, and laughed again. "'But you can't have me, you know. Mr. Grinder's an old friend of mine, and I know eat little larks. What did he tell you to do if I wouldn't have that doormat?' "'Tell me,' asked Dicky, plainly more mystified than ever. "'Why, he never told me nothing. 
he give me the sack this afternoon and chucked me out in what you got your apron on now for oh said dicky looking down at it i just put ye on again a purpose and he glanced at the mat mr weech understood and grinned a genuine grin this time that's right dicky he said never let your wits go a ramblin a shop more like you's a lot too good for a shop boy slavin away from mornin till night and treat it ungrateful what do you sack you for i don't know took a fit ears here i suppose what you gonna give me for this mat it's a two and three mat want something to eat don't you suggested mr weech glancing at a heap of stale cake no i don't dicky answered with sulky resolution i want money all right said mr weech resignedly you ain't had too much to eat and drink here for a long time though but i'll do the handsome seeing you've been treated ungrateful by grinder here's tuppence but dicky held to the mat tuppence ain't enough he said i want fourpence he meant to spare nobody not even mr weech what fourpence gasped mr weech indignantly why you're mad take it away dicky rolled the mat under his arm and turned to the door here said mr weech seeing him going i'll make it threepence seeing you've been treated so bad threepence and a slice of cake he added perceiving that dicky did not hesitate i don't want no cake dicky answered doggedly i want fourpence and i won't take no less the good weech was unwilling that dicky should find another market after all so he submitted to the extortion ah well he said with a sigh pulling out the extra coppers just for this once then you'll have to make it up next time mind you it's only cause i'm sorry for you being treated ungrateful don't you go and treat me ungrateful now dicky pocketed his pence and made for home while mr weech chuckling gently at his morning prophecy of a doormat for fourpence carried the plunder to the room reserved for new and unused stock promising himself however a peep at grinder's shop in the morning to make quite sure that dicky had really left so ended dicky's dealings with the house of grinder when father sturt next saw the oil man and inquired of dicky's progress he was met with solemn congratulations that no larcenies were to pay for Mr. Grinder's sagacity, it seemed, had enabled him to detect and crush at the outset Dicky's plans for selling stock wholesale on his own account. Out of consideration for the vicar's recommendation, he had refrained from handing the boy over to the police, but had paid him a week in advance and dismissed him. Father Sturt insisted on repaying the money, and went his way with a heavy heart. For if this were what came of the promising among his flock, what of the others? For some while he saw nothing of Dicky, and the incident fell back among a crowd of others in his remembrance, for Dicky was but one among thousands, and the disappointment was but one of many hundreds. Lying awake that night, but with closed eyes, Dicky heard his mother, talking with his father, suggest that perhaps an enemy had earwigged Grinder, and told him a tale that had brought about Dicky's dismissal. Somebody, perhaps, who wanted the situation for somebody else. Josh Perrott did no more than grunt at the guess, but it gave a new light to Dicky. Clearly, that would account for Grinder's change. But who could the mischief-maker be? The little clock on the mantelpiece ticked away busily in the silence, and Dicky instantly thought of the hunchback. He, it must have been, without a doubt. 
Who else? Was he not hanging about the shop, staring and sneering, but a day or two back? And was it not he who had pursued him with malice on every occasion, in school and out? Had not Bobby Roper this very trick of lying tales? Where was the gratuitous injury in all these four years that had not been Bobby Roper's work? Dicky trembled with rage as he lay, and he resolved on condign revenge. The war with Dovelane was over for the time being, but that made it easier for him to catch his enemy. Section 22 The feud between the Jago and Dovelane was eternal, just as was that between the Rands and the Learys, but, like the Ran and Leary feud, it had its paroxysms and its intervals, and, in both cases, the close of a paroxysm was signalised by a great show of amity between the factions. Bob Ran and Billy Leary would drink affably from the same pot, and Nora Walsh and Sally Green would call each other Mum, while Jagos and Dovelaners would mingle in bars and lend pinches of tobacco and call each other Matey. A paroxysm in the war had now passed, and reconciliation was due. The Dovelaners had been heavily thrashed, their Benjamins and Kixies had been impounded in Meakin Street, and they had ceased from buying. Dovelane itself had been swept from end to end by the victorious Jago, and the populations of both were dotted thickly with bandaged heads. This satisfactory state of things achieved, there was little reason left for fighting. Moreover, if fighting persisted too long at a time, the police were apt to turn up in numbers, subjecting the neighbourhood to much inconvenient scrutiny, and very often coming across Jagos, or even Dovelaners, wanted on old accounts. So peace was declared, and as a visible sign thereof, it was determined that the Dovelaners should visit the Jago in a body, there to join in a sing-song at Mother Gap's. Mother Gap's was chosen, not only because it was Mother Gap's, an important consideration, but also because of the large room behind the bar, called the Club Room, which had long ago been made of two rooms and a big cupboard, by the cutting away of crazy partitions from the crazy walls. Scarce was it dark when the Dovelaners, in a succession of hilarious groups, but withal a trifle suspicious, began to push through Mother Gap's doors. Their caps pulled down to their ears, their hands in their pockets, their shoulders humped, and their jackets buttoned tight, they lurched through the Jago, grinning with uneasy affability at the greetings that met them, being less practised than the Jagos in the assumption of elaborate cordiality. In the club room of the Feathers there were but three or four of the other party, though the bar was packed. The three or four, of whom Josh Perrot was one, were by way of a committee of stewards, deputed to bid the Dovelaners welcome and to help them to seats. The Jago were in some sort in the situation of hosts, and it had been decided after the debate that it would ill become them to take their places till their guests were seated. The punctilio of the Jago on such occasions was a marvel ever. So Josh Perrot stood at one side of the club room door, and Billy Leary at the other, shaking hands with all who entered, and strenuously maintaining cheerful grins. Now the Jago smile was a smile by itself, unlike the smiles in other places. It faded suddenly, and left the face, the Jago face, drawn and sad and startling by contrast, as of a man betrayed into mirth in the midst of great sorrow, so that a persistent grin was known for a work of conscious effort. The Dovelaners came in still larger numbers than had been expected, and before long it was perceived that there would be little space in the club room, if any at all, for the Jagos. Already the visitors seemed to fill the place, 
but they still kept coming and found places by squeezing. There was some doubt as to what had best be done. Meanwhile the sing-song began, for at least a score were anxious to oblige at once, and every moment fresh volunteers arose. Many dove-laners stood up and so made more room, but more came and still more, till the club could hold not another, and the very walls were like to burst. Under the low ceiling hung a layer of smoke that obscured the face of the man standing on the table at the end to sing, and under the smoke was a close-packed array of heads, hats, and clay pipes, much diversified by white bandages and black eyes. Such dove-laners as came in now were fain to find places in the bar, if they could, and a crowd of jagos, men and women, hung about the doors of the feathers. More fortunate than other boys, Dicky, who would go anywhere to hear what purported to be music, had succeeded in worming himself through the bar and almost to the door of the club-room, but he could get no farther, and now he stood compressed, bounded on the face by Cocko Harnwell's coat-tails, and on the back of the head by Fluffy Pike's moleskin waistcoat, with pearlies down the front and the artful dodger over the pockets. Pud Palmer, one of the reception committee, was singing. He accompanied his chorus by a step-dance, and all the company stamped in sympathy. She's a fighter, she's a biter, she's a swearer, she's a tearer, the gone of self, how early they calls a rorty sell. But as I'm a particular short odd bloke, I calls a rorty Sarah, I'm a goin' crash, crash. Dicky clung to Cocko Harnwell's coat-tails lest he were trampled to death, and for a while he was flung about, crushed and bruised among rushing men, like a swimmer among breakers, while the air was rent with howls and the smash of glass, for the club-room floor had given way. It had been built but slightly in the beginning, as floor for two small rooms and a cupboard, with little weight to carry, old and rotten now, and put to the strain of a multitude stamping in unison, it had failed utterly, and had let down a struggling mob of men five feet on the barrels in the cellar, panic-stricken and jumbled with tables, pots, wooden forms, lighted pipes, and splintered joinery. From the midst of the smash, a dove-laner bawled aloud that it was a trap, and instantly, jagos and dove-laners were at each other's throats, and was like to go hard with the few jagos among the ruins. Billy Leary laid about him desperately with a ragged piece of flooring, while Josh Perrot and Pud Palmer battered dove-laners with quart pots. Then it was shouted without, that the dove-laners were exterminating the jagos within, and a torrent of jagos burst through the doors, poured through the bar, and over the club-room threshold into the confusion below. Dicky, bruised, frightened, and flung like a rag this way and that, at last made shift to grasp a post, and climb up on the bar counter. Mother Gap, a dishevelled maniac, was dancing amid pots and broken glass, black in the face, screaming inaudibly. Dicky stumbled along the counter, climbed over the broken end of the partition, and fell into the arms of Kiddo Cook, coming in with a rush. "'Put the boy out!' yelled Kiddo, turning and heaving him over the heads behind him. Somebody caught Dicky by a leg and an arm. His head hit the doorpost, the world turned a double somersault about him, and he came down with a crash. He was on the flags of old Jago Street, with all his breath driven out of him. But he was quickly on his feet again. A crowd beat against the front of Mother Gap's, and reinforcements came running from everywhere, with the familiar rallying cry, 
Jago, Jago, old tight! Dove Lane had abused the Jago hospitality. Woe to the Dove Laners! There were scuffles here and there where Dove Laners, who had never reached the club room or who had been crowded out of it, made for escape. Dicky was shaken and sore, but he pulled himself together resolutely. He had seen a few Dove Lane boys about before he had got into the feathers, and plainly it was his duty to find them and bash them. Moreover, he wondered what had become of his father. He hastened through the dark passage of the house next to Mother Gap's, into the backyard, and through the broken fence. There was a door in the clubroom wall, and through this he thought to see what was going forward. The cellar, at any rate at the farther end, was a pit of writhing forms, and the din rose loud as ever. A short figure stood black against the light, and held by the doorpost, looking down at the riot. Dicky knew it. He sprang at Bobby Roper, pulled him by the arm, and struck at him furiously. The hunchback, whimpering, did his best to retaliate and get away. But Dicky, raging over the remembrance of his fancied injury, struck savagely and struck again, till Bobby Roper tripped backward over the projecting end of a broken floorboard and pitched headlong into the cellar. He struck a barrel and rolled over, falling into the space between that and two other barrels. Dicky looked but the hunchback did not move. Then some of the dove laners flung pots at the lamps hanging against the clubroom walls. Soon they were smashed and fell, and there was a darkness, and under cover thereof the aliens essayed flight. Dicky was a little frightened at what he had done, but he felt that with Bobby Roper anything was justifiable. Some dove laners escaped by the back door. The ceiling was low, and it was not five feet between the barrels and the broken joists and these Dicky avoided by getting back through the fence. In the end, most of the enemy struggled away by one means or another, and when lights were brought at last, the Jagos were found pummeling each other savagely in the gloom. Father Sturt, apprised of something uncommon by the exodus of members from the club, finally locked the doors and came to investigate. He arrived as the Jagos were extricating themselves from the cellar, and it was he who lifted the little hunchback from among the barrels and carried him into the open air he also who carried him home. No bone was broken, and no joint was disturbed, but there was a serious shock, many contusions, and a cut on the scalp. So said the surgeon, whom Father Sturt took with him to Dove Lane, and Bobby Roper lay a fortnight in bed. More plaster than ever embellished the heads of Dove Lane and the Jago that night, but for the Jagos there was compensation, for down among the barrels lay many a packet of tobacco, many a pair of boots, and many a corner stuffed with mixed property of other sorts, which Mother Gap had fenced for many a month back, so that it happened to more than one warrior to carry home again something with which she had run between the posties long before, and had sold to Mother Gap for what she would give. The ground floor of the feathers stood a battered shell. The damage of four years ago was inconsiderable compared to this. With tears and blasphemy, Mother Gap invaded the hoard of her long iniquity to buy a new floor. But it was the larceny, the taking of the tobacco and the boots, and the many other things from among the barrels that cut her to the soul. A cruel, a cruel thing was such robbery, sheer robbery, said Mother Gap. Josh Perrott got a bad sprain in the cellar and had to be helped home. More, he took with him not a single piece of plunder. Such was his painful disablement. End of Part 4